Hey guys, welcome back to the Nutrition Expedition. Before today's episode, we just wanted to say, we're not qualified specialists. If you have any issues, see a healthcare professional. The daily posts, including recipes, exercises, nutrition facts, and calorie comparisons, follow us on Instagram at The Nutrition Expedition. Peace. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, today we are joined by an expert on gut health. He's also a naturopath, herbalist, nutritionist. Uh, he's got almost 20 years of experience in the health field. During this time, he has published a number of books, research, uh, research studies, and he has done a large number of academic presentations around gut health. Today we are joined by Dr. Jason Horlack. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome, guys. It's nice to be here. Awesome. So um, to, to start it off, I just wanted to ask, how did you actually get into gut health originally and like, what made you inspired to get into this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think I did my undergraduate uh, bachelor's degree in, in, in naturopathy and this was, I think I started studying 1996. And for, for naturopath, gut health has always been a, a core component of how we consider people's cases. We're always looking at how the gut might be impacting anything else. And it, it was probably a matter of good timing in some respects that I had a, a lecturer in my, my final year of my naturopathic training who, who came in and did a special lecture on the role of the gut bacteria and health and the dysbiosis, which is an, an altered ecosystem and what repercussions that might be based on literature that was really around in the, up to the late 90s. And I just got super inspired by that topic. And, and it, for me, it wasn't uh, Sometimes we get into things because of our own personal health issues, and let's talk about personal health issues like everyone else. But mine aren't gut; <laughs> mine are actually respiratory tract asthma, hay fever type symptoms. So that was always my sort of main interest before that time. But I was, something really touched me when when he talked about when he gave this particular lecture. So I went up to him right afterwards and said, "Hey, I want to study this more," and I went on to do my honors in um, 2000, then my PhD from 2001, looking at ways uh, we could change the gut microbiota using probiotics, prebiotics, and herbicides for example, and gave me a chance to really delve into that area for, for a number of years, which was great because it was at that point where there was a you know, handful of researchers around the world talking about what we called the microflora at that time point. And there was you know a couple of handfuls of clinical trials and probiotics and prebiotics coming out each year, but it was, it was certainly easy to keep on top of. You know, you skip forward 20 years now and it's just a completely different field um, in terms of the number of research teams involved in it and the number of research publications put out every year in the fields of probiotics, prebiotics, you know, the gut microbiome, absolutely huge. But it's been a wonderful ride to, and, and a wonderful capacity to see that that field grow so much. And for me to see that greater acceptance of the importance of gut health and uh, the role of the, micro, the microbiome in people's health compared to 20 years ago where you know, it's just a handful of people going, this is important. We need to look after this ecosystem because it's got repercussions if we change it and damage it. Whereas now that is becoming much more widespread and known. Awesome. Yeah, and if you could just continue on that topic of uh, pre and probiotics, could you just explain to our listeners the difference between the two? Yeah, so, so probiotics are the, the most commonly uh, utilized definition is live microbes that when ingested in adequate amounts confer a health benefit on the host of the person who, who ingested them. So the few components of that definition we really take it apart. So live microbes. That's important because you could have a supplement that contains dead bacteria that's still therapeutic, but it wouldn't actually be a probiotic at that point. Um, 
when uh, given in adequate amounts, because that's another, another part of that definition too, is that we can have a great probiotic strain, but if we don't give in the right dose, that's like a subtherapeutic dose, again, it won't necessarily have a therapeutic effect. And that seems like a bit of a no brainer, but there's a number of supplements on the market who don't actually achieve that dose. Hmm. And it's like, okay, well, we can just sort of see by default that these are going to be problematic to, to use and expect clinical um, change from, from their ingestion. And the last aspect of that is, is essentially creating a health benefit that when people ingest it, some beneficial impact occurs. And again, some people think, oh, well, all probiotics do this. And, and when you start looking at the, uh, at the research reality and start teasing things and looking at in greater detail, realize not all probiotic supplements are created equal. Not all will have a therapeutic effect. And in some parts of the world, they take this really seriously and they won't even allow you to call your, your supplement a probiotic unless you have clinical trials showing that it works for specific health conditions. Otherwise, you can call it a microbiological supplement or something along those lines, but you can't use the term probiotic. Yeah. Now, prebiotics is one of, is probably one of the most, under, um, most misunderstood term that, that's widely used in the blogosphere. And, and prebiotics are essentially a selectively fermented substance that nurtures a selective group of bacteria in the, in the beneficial bacteria in the gut. Yeah, so people just tend to throw the term around that all fibers are prebiotics, et cetera, and that's not true. All fibers will generally feed microbes in the gut, but prebiotics are very selective. Mm. Only a handful or one or two species might have the right machinery to take apart and eat these compounds that we call prebiotics. And we see this very selective change in the ecosystem with, with only two or three species whose populations go up dramatically versus having, you know, a f broader fiber sources might feed, you know, a couple dozen species. That's not a bad thing. We certainly want to use fiber sources to feed and nurture a whole wide range of species, but it's still different from prebiotics where we're really targeting what we're after. Um, and it means when we can do a, a, a uh, microbiome analysis and see what the ecosystem looks like, we go, okay, you are low on these species here. We can come in with prebiotics and selectively increase those species without necessarily feeding other species that we don't want to increase. And just a quick question on that. How can you uh, individualize that and actually um, analyze someone's gut health? Is it usually through stool samples? It is, and, and we've come a long way. And this is, I think, the thing that's, that's grown most over 20 years that I've been in this field is, is the, the technology that we had back in the late 90s, early 2000s, was really based on culturing, where we take a, a poo sample, put it into a Petri dish, and grow it, and we could sort of look to see what was there. These days, they use DNA to do that, and it's far more accurate. You know, there's hundreds of species we didn't even know existed until we started using DNA. I think in the last you know, 15 years, we probably isolated and, and um, noticed essentially 250 plus species in the gut that we didn't know existed, you know, 10 plus 15 years mm -hmm. ago. And, and so, yeah, so now there are specialized um, labs offering microbiome or microbiota analyses um, and, and they've come down in price too. <laughs> From when I first started for some of the better ones, you're looking $800 a pop, which oh, is wow. a fair yeah, whack bad, of yeah. money to put aside to yeah. do a stool analysis. Whereas now there's some that are sort of around in the US that you're looking at in hundred US dollars for yeah. um, a much better test than what we could get for $800 15 years ago. Yeah. And just to yeah. move back onto the pre and probiotics uh, topic, how would you explain and give a brief explanation as to how they benefit the body? Yeah, with prebiotics, it's really about the increased levels of beneficial bacteria. That's that's perhaps the the key way that they're they're working. Now, you you get this flow-on effect too that that you can almost divide bacteria in the in the gut ecosystem into um, 
for simplicity's sake, you, you might have you know beneficial bacteria or, or species that we tend to see as having very positive, important health roles. Then you've got pathogens that we'd see as being you know bad, as having sort of disease-causing roles. And then there's other species that we technically call pathobionts, which are species that, when present in the right amounts, actually are very healthful. But when the balance gets out of out of out of whack, that's when they can cause harm. Right. So what we'll often find when we do an, an analysis, for example, is we'll see that the beneficial bacteria bacteria might be too low, pathobionts would be too high. And occasionally there'll be direct pathogens involved with that too. But what prebiotics have got the capacity to do is alter that balance. So the beneficial bacteria go up, the pathobionts go down. And because of that, that means that your level of inflammation in the gut will go down. Um, the level of inflammation in your whole system can go down because the, one of the key things that's come out of research in the last 20 years is really how the balance of, of species that are present in your gut. So the, the ecology, what, what species are present with how much bad guys there are versus how much good guys, to make it very, very simplistic, really impact both both the, the level of inflammation in the gut and gut permeability. So how good our gut cells stay together versus not, but also body-wide inflammation. So what's happening everywhere else. And that's one of the key things that, that prebiotics have the capacity to do is shift that. Yeah, so we can decrease those inflammatory drivers in the gut decrease inflammation body-wide. And that means they actually are, are applicable to a wide range of, of, of conditions, you know, from um, anxiety, depression, obesity, type 2 diabetes. These are, these are all clinical trials using prebiotics to actually impact those health conditions, as well as gut conditions like irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel diseases like ulcerative colitis, mm. that are much more obvious. Um, and then post, you know, agents that, that cause changes to the ecosystem like antibiotics or chemotherapy or radiotherapy which will, will cause you know as part of their their um unwanted side effects changes to the gut ecosystem generally negative shifts of decreased beneficial bacteria increased growth of pathogens and pathobionts and you can use prebiotics after those those um, medical interventions to help shift that balance again yeah. um, and you can see that decrease and that, that can allow the gut to heal for example when it's been inflamed because of that imbalance of bacteria yeah, no, with probiotics, it's a little bit more complex because when we get to the nitty gritty of, of probiotics, we realize that that there are absolutely hundreds of different strains of probiotics and they all may have slightly different impacts in what they do once they're ingested. So, for example, there are some that will produce antimicrobial compounds that work selectively to diminish levels of, of bad guys, pathogens in the gut or pathobionts. So that means that the It'll be pretty good post antibiotics or potentially post chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Um, after a, a, gut, a food poisoning episode, for example, they might, might well be very useful in those instances. Now, there are other probiotic strains which can decrease gut inflammation and promote gut healing. And so they might be very useful, again, after food poisoning, um, inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis, where there's a lot of you know, inflammation and damage in the gut, uh, to celiac disease, where again, you get lots of damage to the gut from, from the, the continued ingestion of gluten. And some of those probiotic strains can just help heal up the gut more quickly and improve nutritional status more quickly. Mm. And there'll be other probiotics that are even the more nuanced with their effects. Some have got the capacity to decrease cholesterol levels. Some can interact with gut cells to increase serotonin production, which can then potentially impact mood and depression. Mm. Some can help bring down blood pressure. You know, some can help balance blood sugar dysregulation or you know, for, for metabolic syndrome or type two diabetes. Um, and there's some strains even shown to prevent gestational diabetes, which is the diabetes that some women get when they're pregnant, for example, when they're taken at the right time. Some providers can help decrease um, weight when people are weight or obese. You know, it's really trying to match um, 
the, the right action of a strain that they may manifest to the condition that we're trying to treat. And that's been the, the again, and what's, what research has really grown over the last 20 years to, to show that, that we can use these probiotics very much as therapeutic tools in a much broader range of applications than what we thought 15 or 20 years ago, where it's mostly about, ah, oh, you took antibiotics, here, take this, reseed your gut or recolonize your gut, which is really what it used to be about 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's really shifted. And there's very few, if any, probiotic researchers now talking about using our current generation probiotics to, to reseed or re-inoculate. They're about therapeutic effects to treat specific health conditions and diseases. Um, but what's kind of exciting to me anyway as a probiotic researcher is the the novel types of probiotics that will hit the marketplace in the next two, three, four, five years where they're using a, a much um, broader range of gut species to create new probiotics compared to what we used before, which were generally just groups of bacteria within the lactobacillus group and the bifidobacteria group, which is why most people are familiar with lactobacilli or lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, bifidobacterium. We've been using them as part of our probiotic supplements since the 1950s. So they've been around for a long time. But you know what we've got to look forward to is, is a much broader range of probiotic tools that we'll have access to in the future. Yeah, cool. And uh, I wanted to talk a bit more about pre, uh, I'm sorry, good and bad gut health. And especially because I feel these days, it's sort of treated like weight loss. Everyone wants that quick fix and no one really wants to really um, understand that it's more of a long journey, especially if you've been harming it for years. So I just want to yeah. ask, what do you think around this topic? And if someone has been struggling for years, what is the way forward? Because you see these gummies and stuff that are marketed that are supposed to give you good gut health or um, bring good bacteria into your gut, but in reality, they don't do what they supposedly do, do they? No, I think the current range of probiotic systems that we have and fermented foods that bacteria found in our fermented foods don't really have the capacity to reseed or repopulate the gut. So I think it's a it's, it's certainly sort of misadvertised in that way, and it has been for a long time. Um, and I think that can it sort of lead people to believe there's, there's, there are major shortcuts here, like, okay, I can take all these things, you know, either in the past or, or more, more recently that might damage the ecosystem, but I can just pop a pill that'll re repopulate my gut. And it's like, nah, <laughs> that's, that's not reality. I mean, you're, you're essentially, um, when you come, we're, we're given the ecosystem in the birth process and for a little while after that words, if we were managed to be breastfed. Yeah, so if we went through the birth canal, then we were breastfed, we were essentially seeded in ecosystem at that standpoint, at that time point, sorry. And from that point, we're really doing our best to be custodians of that ecosystem and protect it from harm um, by nurturing with, with our lifestyle and dietary decisions and, and avoiding certain interventions as much as we can that are going to cause harm to that ecosystem. Mm. Um, but for what we find for most of us is that we get less and less. <laughs> Our ecosystem becomes more, less and less diverse um, with, with each passing year because we're taking courses of antibiotics, because we're eating a, a typical Western diet that doesn't really do a good job of feeding our beneficial bacteria at all. Uh, because we might be, be binge drinking and alcohol because we may be not, you know, we're, we're our, our sleep cycle is really out of whack as well. We're staying up all night, not getting enough adequate sleep because we're not exercising enough. All those things will diminish that ecosystem diversity. And that means that over the years, it becomes um, less diverse and essentially species will go extinct along the way. And I wish it was this easy. <laughs> hey, take a yeah. probiotic pill and, and repopulate your gut from all the species you've lost from 20 years of, of sort of, you know, not looking after the gut to the best of your capacity. But it's not. 
you know, really, and there are people looking at this now uh, and trying to find out ways of, of repopulating with that. At this point, it's really doing fecal transplants. It's probably the only way to, to repopulate, which puts it into the, a different sort of category than just popping a little, a little pill. And I think that that understanding should really get out, go out there into the, the broader um, community because I think we have to look at the fact take on that on board the concept that we're custodians of this ecosystem and we're passing it on to the next generation and we can only pass on what we have so with every sort of multiple course of antibiotic species go extinct and you know you can see it through the years you, you may have had a nice wide ecosystem at, at birth but then by the time you're, you're 20 it's here you can only pass on what's here not what you've lost mm-hmm. along the way and i think when we really take on board that concept it really helps shift the way that we engage with with um our lifestyle our diet and even around medications because you know there, there's a time and place for antibiotics have to be used they save lives they save limbs yeah, but we also know that they're way too, too used for conditions that are not helpful for, like viral infections. And if you're really empowered around and knowledgeable about this, you can go, you can help discern when you need them from when they're recommended because someone wants to prescribe you something because you've got a cough and they go, okay, we'll take some antibiotics because maybe it'll help it. Even though it's a viral infection, it shouldn't. Whereas we shouldn't be doing that sort of antibiotic prescribing anymore. And people should be more aware of the fact that that's not going to do their gut good yeah. in the short term or the long term. Yeah. And you mentioned how um, there's a very prominent Western uh, diet that, that populates Australia, especially as America, those sort of countries that high fats, um, you know, high, high amounts of sodium. What sort of foods would you, would you recommend uh, for people to really re, uh, rebuild that gut health and, and can their most prebiotic, um, they're full of prebiotics. So which foods are the most prebiotic dense in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the, the research is, is pretty clear on, on the ways of, of creating a healthy ecosystem with what you've got. Yeah, because you can't go back in time and change what it was. And some of it's beyond our control. Like I was given a lot of antibiotics when I was a kid. Yeah. So my parents thought they were doing the best thing by me as parents, generally, as, as health professionals and, and, and parents generally are doing the best that they're, they're aware of at that time point. But we can't go back and change that. So, so what do, you've got to work with what you've got now. And, and certainly the, the factors that come through with research as having the most capacity to um, diversify that ecosystem and nurture the species of beneficial bacteria we're, we're after, the ones we want more of, uh, is, is eating promptly plant-based and whole food and fiber, 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 <laughs> and color. Yeah. And we want as much natural colors. So we want to use you know, black rice and red rice and black beans and azuki beans and purple carrots and purple potatoes you want to get away from just the whites and browns you really want to get diversity of color and it's those color compounds called polyphenols they're actually used as a food source for a beneficial bacteria and it's a a great win-win situation because when we eat those polyphenols if we don't have the right bacteria in our gut or not much of them those those sort of anti-cancer and antioxidant compounds and polyphenols essentially get pooed straight out into the toilet bowl without being absorbed by us. They don't get absorbed until the bacteria consume them and change them to something else. So the win-win is we eat it, we feed the good bacteria, their population goes up, and they're also converting those polyphenols into an absorbable compound, which then has anti-cancer, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects, and gets absorbed. Yeah. Um, and, and it's diverse diversity of diet as well, that, that we tend to think of fiber as fiber. It's not. We want to have the widest... It comes in all different shapes and sizes. We want to eat as much as many different shapes and sizes as possible because there'll be some species in our gut that are pretty pretty picky. They're only like eating one or two types of fiber and others that will eat almost anything. 
But what we really want to do is make sure we're feeding as many of the species as possible, so the diversity of diet. So one of the, 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 the guidelines I give my patients commonly is try to eat 40 plus different food in plant, whole plant foods in a given week. And that way they can actually you know, try to make sure that they're feeding as many species as possible. Hmm. And you know, there's nothing necessarily magic about the 40 number, but it's, it's certainly, for me, it's, it's a, a point that's achievable. And I got some patients that go above that, they're like at 50 or 60, and they're going through and counting all the different foods. And that may sound daunting, but you can use, uh, you can use Granny Smith apples, Red Delicious apples, and Pink Lady as three different foods. Oh, you can use black rice, red rice, brown rice as three different foods because they all have slightly different fiber compounds, slightly different polyphenols, which will feed different bacteria. Mm. So it doesn't have to be quite as um, scary as it actually seems. And it's, it is fairly cheerful for most people. And if we're able to eat mostly plants, mostly whole food, um, but we're always getting fiber, always getting polyphenols, always getting resistant starches, always getting oligosaccharides. And you mentioned before prebiotic rich foods, specifically things like onions and garlic, asparagus, legumes in general, all contain oligosaccharides which are which are definitively prebiotic that they will increase sweet levels of bifidobacteria uh, another healthful species called fecalobacterium and during the other one called acromantia they'll go up when we eat more of those types of foods and same with the polyphenols they will tend to selectively feed up those beneficial bacteria that we're after and on top of that we're trying to make sure we're getting seven hours of sleep a night and moderate amounts of exercise as well those are probably the, the core aspects about maintaining a health and, and a healthy ecosystem and certainly trying to create one when it, from a less healthy state. It's funny how you, um, the exact foods you mentioned, because we, I don't know, you definitely know the blue zones in the world that um, people live longest. Yeah. And we are mentioning it just a few podcasts ago, how these are the foods that people live longest on. And as soon as you mention them, they're the exact same foods we yeah. mentioned. So very plant-based um, diets, you know? Yeah. And I think it's not a not a coincidence. <laughs> I think that they've essentially have. When, I think when the concepts has really come out of the last twenty years is is how humans are, are meta organisms or, or um, super organisms that are only partially are partially um, microbial and partially non microbial. That way of saying. In fact, many who argue we're mostly microbes. Our gut bacteria um, exceed the number of human cells we have otherwise, and we need to nurture both components to actually be at our healthiest. And if we're really eating or living a lifestyle pattern, eating a dietary pattern, which is actually not nurturing 90% of your cells, you're going to have health consequences from that. And many people are arguing that's what we're seeing in the diseases in Westerners, that, we're, that the chronic disease rates and the types of diseases we're getting is because we're not nurturing the gut microbiota versus the people in the blue zone. They're not necessarily thinking of that. And they're not eating their, their you know, purple a sweet potato in Japan because they're feeding their their beneficial bacteria, <laughs> but that's what they're doing, and they're actually getting the so the anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory effects out of the purple sweet potato because they're nurturing their beneficial bacteria at the same time. Yeah, awesome. And I want to go on to a bit of obviously still on prebiotics, but uh, obviously most people need a lot more prebiotics, but some conditions people need to monitor and limit the actual amount of prebiotics they have. So do you want to just mention? what conditions these are yeah when, you, when your gut's working beautifully when you introduce more prebiotic rich foods you'll essentially just get more flattest you'll fart more generally it'll be less smelly <laughs> but there'll be more volume and particularly for the first week then things tend to settle out and then if you increase your dose again you'll you'll get a little more flattest and it'll settle back down again but there'll be certain situations where 
that increased intestinal gas, which is totally normal, when we have more fiber, we have more prebiotics in our diet or prebiotic supplements, you will certainly make more, more gas in the gut. That is, happens to everybody. But it was all, when it's all working well, you'll just let that out as flat as. But when it's not, you can get pain or discomfort, um, distension, bloating. And conditions like irritable bowel syndrome would be one of the, the classic scenarios where that increased gas production causes notable pain. And the, the reason why is because mostly people with irritable bowel syndrome have a condition called visceral hypersensitivity, which essentially means that the nerves in their gut are hypersensitive. And in, in research settings, they can actually test this by putting special balloons, inserting the balloons into the bottom, blowing up those balloons, and people with IBS will get pain when the balloon is full. Normal, healthy people when the balloon is this full. They'll get the same degree of pain with just a small amount of gas being produced, yeah. which is why diets like the low FODMAP diet are, are widely used for, for IBS. BS because they take away those prebiotic containing foods as gas forming foods. So there's less gas produced. Will that diminish symptoms? Yes. Will that diminish levels of beneficial bacteria over time? Yes. <laughs> and that's what we don't want, which is why most people out there are talking about short-term use of low FODMAP diets while we try to treat the underlying inflammation because the FODMAPs aren't the cause of the issue. The prebiotics causing you pain, they're not the cause. It's because your gut is inflamed and your gut is damaged or your transit time is altered. Because that's the other thing we need to consider too, is how quickly gas and, and material moves through the gut. And if it's very slow, that gas can really build up and not really get pushed out the right way. Mm -hmm. And those are, for, for me and my patients, the issues that we see most with, with when people are reacting to these foods is really slow transit time and that visceral hypersensitivity and both can be addressed if you know what you're doing and you can do some preliminary work to try to get the gut ready and i suppose you'd also put small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in that category too where you've got too much bacteria growing in the small bowel compared to what you're supposed to have they will start fermenting things that they usually wouldn't in that area and producing gas so that can cause you know bloating distension very quickly after meals, for example. And those would be, you know, pretty classic conditions where moving straight on from your, wherever your diet is on now to one that containing lots of prebiotics will be not just increasing flatulence, <laughs> it'll be causing pain or discomfort um, and, and maybe big changes in bowel pa pattern in terms of constipation or diarrhea. And that really means there's something deeper in your gut that you need to get addressed um, to, to enable you to eat these healthy foods again and to really nurture your, your microbiome. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier how important uh, fiber is in the, in a diet, especially to rebuild your gut health. Um, how much fiber would you prescribe to a patient of yours per day that's struggling with with uh, gut health problems? And and also, is there anything such is there anything such as too much fiber in your diet? Um, I mean, I, th I think for individual patients, you could argue yes, there'll be a there'll be a point where too much fiber can be the case. But I, I think if you look at what humans have traditionally consumed, yeah. where some of our hunter-gatherer ancestors are eating 100 grams of fiber per day, and you know most Westerners are lucky if they get 10. Yeah. <laughs> and if we're going high fiber for Westerners, like 30 grams per day, it's still like a lot less than what that humans have arguably, most population groups have evolved consuming, um, and a long way from where our gut can actually handle when it's all working well. Um, but it's really about individualizing it for that that patient based on their state of health and what gut conditions that they have. And I think that's probably the most important aspect, you know, for, for me, I'm probably not too uh, prescriptive in terms of you need to have this many grams of fiber. It's more about eat. I want you to eat these, these, this, this, and this, these types of foods and take these prebiotic supplements would probably be the way that I would work on that. And the prebiotics are a way of, of really speeding up 
the shift in that ecosystem balance. So really speed up the increased growth of uh, beneficial bacteria and, and bring down levels of pathogens and pathovirons much more quickly. So I will often use prebiotics like lactulose, like inulin FOS, like lactoligosaccharides, and lastly, partially hydrolyzed guar gum uh, in, in my practice as ways of shifting the ecosystem more quickly. But, but diet and, and lifestyle factor, but certainly diet is the key thing in terms of moving forward. But as I said, that for some people will need to do, um, or they'll need to do preliminary work to get their gut ready to be able to handle increases in, in fiber hmm. and without getting you know, pain and discomfort. I want to go on to a big topic now because you mentioned earlier, uh, and a lot of people don't actually know and aren't informed on this. What role does someone's gut health have on their mental health? Potentially huge, <laughs> and, and it's it's been interesting watching again the research in this in this area, and there's been some fascinating uh, studies published in the last five or seven years showing exactly how much of an impact there this can actually be. One of the the key ones here was actually one of the interesting studies where they can take fecal matter from a depressed person and give that to a rat or a mouse, and those mice or rats will get depressed. Oh. You know, so no change in diet, no change in lifestyle. They'll just get depressed from, from getting a fecal transplant from someone who's depressed. And they get a fecal transplant from someone who's not depressed, and that doesn't happen. There's something about that, that transfer of microbes. And we know that depending on the balance of those microbes, they can really be pro-inflammatory, as I mentioned earlier on in the piece. That inflammation in your system can actually influence your, your blood-brain barrier and actually influence the capacity of your, your, your brain to make certain neurotransmitters like serotonin. So when our inflammatory tone is up, we generally make less serotonin, which is why there are many people out there arguing that depression is very much an inflammatory condition, not just a neurotransmitter imbalance. We've got that aspect to it, but inflammation is often the core driver of that. Yeah, and there's, there's certainly, uh, and that was a pretty pivotal piece of research showing that we could actually you know, transfer or transmit depression to, to other beings by just changing their gut microbiota. Mm which really showed the importance that ecosystem may actually have on, on mental state. I think a lot of that comes through to that, comes back to that inflammation because there are certain, as well as more indirectly gut integrity too, because we, the research has shown that people who are anxious or depressed often have more leaky gut. So increased intestinal permeability, which means there's more rather than cells being like this, there's more gaps that are there and that can allow more bacterial byproducts to leak in things like, uh, lipopolysaccharide or endotoxin that's found in certain bacterial groups in the gut. Um, it's very pro-inflammatory, but when your gut's very intact, it doesn't much, very little it gets through and what does get through your liver tends to deal with okay. But in certain conditions, we have the guts more, more leaky and that allows this lipopolysaccharide to get in and then that can actually train, damage your blood-brain barrier and actually change what neurotransmitters you produce. And there's some other fascinating research showing that you can take someone who's really happy and healthy, give them a shot of endotoxin, and they'll be depressed for about five hours afterwards. You know, again, which illustrates the, the way in which bacterial byproducts can alter ones very acutely. Insane. And, yeah. and this is what happens post, um, like a binge drinking alcohol night too, is essentially we cause gut leakiness because of the alcohol, and we get this flood of endotoxin that flows in there. And that can be responsible for the next day seediness, <laughs> low mood depression that comes with that too, is because the endotoxins actually changing the inflammatory environment in our brain and changing what neurotransmitters are actually produced. So interesting. Yeah, it's amazing how many different uh, things in the body can influence your your brain and how your everyday life is. You know, and it's incredible how that that research piece of research that you just mentioned with the rats. Uh, I don't think Lockie and I would have guessed that at all if no, you no. were to bring that up and just finish halfway through. So. 
Uh, that's incredible. No. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible to hear stuff like that because it really opens our eyes as to... Because um, a lot of the time people can tell you stuff and, and you know, you hear it through a thousand different mouths and it always gets, you know, changed as it goes. And then once you see physical research that shows it, it's like, wow, you know, people start realizing at that point that it has a has an effect, you know, rather than just hearing words. So um, what we like to do on this podcast, I don't know if you've listened before, but what we like to do is just ask every one of our guests uh, one tip to improve people's health in any way. And I feel like it might be a bit of a different uh, it might be more of a specific answer from your uh, point of view to do with gut health. But if you'd just like to answer that question, um, that'd be great. Eat whole foods yeah. and, and avoid processed foods and avoid foods that contain chemical emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners. Um, I think if we can avoid processed foods, focus on whole natural foods, that shift will make a huge difference to how you feel and certainly how your ecosystem is functioning and its health. That's yeah. a really good point because most people on this, um, like trying to calorie count for a, a diet, they just go towards artificial sweeteners and stuff like that to make easy fixes because they you can stick to their calorie yeah. count when in reality <clears throat> it might do more harm than good for that. Like maybe the external look, it might look that might get better because they might be able to lose the weight, but internally they're doing more harm than good. So it's, it's not too good, is it? Yeah, it's a short-term, long-term aspect. Yeah, yeah, and that we know that those artificial sweeteners actually increase levels of, of pathogens in the gut, in the bad guys. And over time, that can actually um, cause, cause things like type 2 diabetes. And this is fascinating research around looking at the impact of artificial sweeteners on blood sugar regulation, <laughs> showing that those artificial sweeteners actually have an indirect, really negative impact on your capacity to regulate blood sugar properly because of the changes in the gut ecosystem they actually confer. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah, and also with the, I think also you could add to that what you said before is just adding more color onto your plate, and that's something I actually yeah. laugh at because my mum says that all the time is the more colors you get on your plate, because as you were saying, the Western diet is all the color, all the all the foods are mostly brown and yellow and beige colors. You know, it's not very I know. Uh, natural uh, diet. It's so crazy. Like, why were they selected that? Because years ago, you could get all these funky colored things and it's yeah. like, they just gone, let's go for white. Like, yeah. you know, purple and reds and red and pinks. And yeah. it's like, don't eat that, just go for white. It's bizarre because <laughs> that variety's been around because humans have always consumed that wide variety of stuff. It's really in the last 50, 60 years that we really narrowed our, our foods down to the, the more bland and white colored things. Yeah. yeah, it's a shame because you can't really get most things in your typical Coles or Woolworths. You have to go to more, your more organic... Um, supermarkets and stuff like that to get the foods we all should be trying to get yeah i know and that's changing a bit because now you will actually sometimes see purple carrots in the supermarkets yeah, where you, yeah. you wouldn't see that you know 10 years ago so things are shifting thankfully yeah and uh thank you we're just going to finish up here but i was going to ask we always ask our guests um if they'd like to give any information as to where our listeners could find uh any of your you know endeavors books uh websites anything like that so if you'd just like to give our listeners a bit of a brief where as where they can find your information yeah yeah so i have got a website called probiotic advisor and we've got a database that's all around evidence-based prescribing of probiotics for the right disease condition but we have a range which is mostly designed for health professionals but we have a range of courses that go from that too and those courses are some are geared for the general public who want to learn more about the microbiome and how to encourage a healthier ecosystem and there are again many there that are they're geared mostly 
or really health literate people or, or health practitioners as well. And then I'm a clinician at, a, at, at so I still see patients. And I think that's been a wonderful thing that I've managed to keep doing for the 20 years of being a researcher and educator is still see patients every single week. Yeah. And I practice at a clinic called Gould's Natural Medicine here in Hobart. And we do um, help, essentially my practice is very gut focused these days. We're focusing on um, microbiota health for people all over the world because it's more of a virtual clinic these days. I don't see many local Hobartians anymore. It's mostly mm -hmm. broader from broader field. Yeah. I always say that people are quick to invest in stuff that doesn't help their long-term health, but they, when it becomes to actually helping themselves, they don't really like to invest in it. So I, I always say rec like investing in your gut health is like, for example, is such an important thing. And for anyone that is struggling, like investing in putting time and effort into it and seeing a specialist such as yourself, it would be so important to um, improve their long-term health. So, yeah, and, and I think you're spot on. And, and with the more research that's coming out all the time, linking that the altered gut ecosystem dysbiosis with so many different conditions from chronic fatigue to Alzheimer's disease to as obesity to type 2 diabetes, um, you know, depression, kidney stones, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, eczema, hay fever, all, all have links with the gut microbiota these days, endometriosis, and um, yeah, the list could go on. But as I said, the more you're researching, the more key that the gut actually is. And you're, you're spot on there, because if we can really look after and nurture this at an earlier time point, I think we stand in good stead to help prevent those other things from developing later on. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today, Doctor. And um, hopefully we can stay in contact and ask any other questions that we have. And we might we might get you on in the future to discuss other topics that you are a specialist in. So thank you so much for coming on and for spending some time with us today. And um, hope all is well down there in Hobart and hope to speak to you soon. Hey, you're very welcome, guys. Yeah, glad to be here. All right. Thank see you guys so later. Much.